How many of you have heard those 10 simple rules before? <laughs> Song by Mercy Me. We're talking about rocks in scripture that have a story to tell and we're not gonna let any rock cry out in our place. We talked about the first rock of truth, the rock that doesn't exist in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus did not kneel beside. Though he may have at other times when he was in the garden, it didn't say that he knelt, it said that he put his face in the dirt, his face on the ground and his soul was sorrowful even unto death. That if we're gonna see the truth of the resurrection story, we have to get the fiction out of the way. This morning, we are talking about another stone, the stone of the law. The key word for this morning is law as we talk about the 10 commandments, the tables of stone. The Ten Commandments play an important role not only in the Lenten season, but in the lives of every Christian. And somehow we have this idea that under grace, it no longer has an impact on us. And I'd like to change our perception and understand really why Jesus came as we follow the tables of stone. I'm wondering this morning, how many of you could recite all the ingredients of a Big Mac? To all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. How many can do that with me? You're old enough to remember that? Come on, let's do it together. Ready? To all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. How many of you think you could name all seven dwarfs? 
We got a few. How many could name all the Disney princesses? <laughs> all of Santa's reindeer. We have all of these lists of things that we could recite. But I wonder this morning how many of us could recite the Ten Commandments in order and be able to explain what they mean. We dare not minimize the importance of the law of God in the life of New Testament believers. So don't let the stone tablets cry out in your place. So let's consider first the tables that God wrote. The tables that God wrote. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, it says this, And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, I know that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, from the outside looking in, it was a fearsome, awesome experience. And that God is not to be trifled with, and he is to be kept high and exalted and sovereign. I get all of that. But there's something that happens inside the discussion with Moses and God that we don't often talk about. And I do think the NIV gets it right here I mean, the King James gets it right here. The NIV says when they finish speaking, but the King James and many of the older translations say, when God made an end of communing with Moses. What was the atmosphere in the space? Was it God sitting Moses down and saying, obey these 10 rules or I'm going to kill you and all of the people and thunder and lightning and anger and ferocity. That's not communing. The word can mean speaking, but it also carries this idea of a warmth of relationship that we would call communion, that God and Moses were communing together. Moses was a man that God loved, and I want to change our perspective on the Ten Commandments, move it from... This austere, harsh, demanding code of conduct and see it rather as a catalog of the love of God for the people that he had called by his name. God loves his people. God is not angry in the Old Testament. God is not vindictive in the Old Testament. God is not judgmental in the Old Testament. And if you think that about God in the Old Testament, you need to read it again. Men are called people that God loves, men after God's own heart. The story of Hosea is a phenomenal love story. You see God speaking to men as he would speak to a friend. There's this warmth and love of Abba, Father, God, who wants to commune and love his people. God is a loving God as much in the Old Testament as we see him in the New Testament. And God is calling them to a covenant relationship. Now, I do have to say um, that this covenant relationship is serious because the Sabbath becomes the mark of their covenant. And God does say, anyone who doesn't keep my covenant, I will kill, will be put to death, why? Because the reality is, you've got to grab a hold of this. The soul that sins, it 
shall die. God created us. I happen to believe that. And I happen to believe that the creator would know the best way for us to live our lives to experience the fullness of what our life can experience. That God would be the one to show us that. God is communing for a long time with Moses, calling his people to a covenant relationship. And so what is God doing? This is more than do's and don'ts, but God is sharing his values, his heart, and his passion for his people. It emphasizes in Exodus chapter 31 that it was written with the finger of God. It wasn't carved out with lightning bolts or chiseled with a hammer and, uh, and into the stone, but rather God took time to sit down with Moses in a communing environment and say there are 10 things that I need you to tell the people that I love. I'm going to write them with my finger. They began to carve into the stone the finger of God, a love letter for his people that would bring them into the fullness of all that he had for them. Now, there's no question who this was from when you see the handwriting, and there's a part of me that wish that we still had those tables of stone. I'd love to see what God's handwriting looks like. I can, tell you, I can tell you this, that my wife's handwriting is distinct, and before I read it, I know that she wrote it because I recognize her handwriting. And that's probably true for you with the people that are closest to you, that you recognize their handwriting, and when you see their handwriting, you have a reaction to that before you even read it because it reflects their character. It reflects to you who they are. This was written, are you hearing me this morning? It was written with the finger of God. Not this, not this fiery flaming event of... But God in his gentleness taking his finger and saying, I have a message for my children. Now, the other thing that you need to understand is nothing, and, and this may you, may, you may argue this with me, and as I've said before, you're entitled to be wrong. <laughs> this isn't new information. There's nothing in the Ten Commandments that's new. If you follow God dealing with the children of Israel in Genesis and the raising up of the nation and his dealing with Abraham all through there, you can find each of these principles alluded to. This wasn't something that they didn't already know or hadn't already heard. What makes this unique is that God takes everything that he had taught them and boils it down to 10 principles that should guide their lives. He records it so that they will have it and remember it. It culminates all of what God had taught them and covenants together with the children of Israel in a formal fashion. So what you have to remember is the Ten Commandments were written on stone because they were not to be broken, written on stone by the finger of God who loves you and wants the best for your life life 
That's what the Ten Commandments are about. Let's take a minute just to think about why that would be. And I could preach on each one of these Ten Commandments, but let me just suggest to you a moment as we walk through them how it reflects God's greater purpose for us. He says first that we should have no other gods before him. Why would that be? Because there are no other gods before him. Would it offend you if I said, I don't want you to follow a liar. I don't want you to follow a cheater. I don't want you to follow a deceiver. And, I, and you can tell when people are getting enamored with someone, they begin to follow someone that's not teaching the truth. He's saying, I want you to stay in relationship with me because I am the only God that exists. And if you put anyone in front of me, it's going to lead you to destruction. It's not this God in need of affirmation and someone to pat him on the back that I need you to put me first. He's saying, I created you. There is no other creator. I am first in your life. Let's keep it that way. Then he said, and no idols. There are a couple of reasons for that. When you make an idol and worship it, you put it ahead of God. But even then, if you created an idol and called it God, why is that a problem? Because when you make an idol to represent God, you limit your understanding of him. He can't dwell in a house. He can't be replicated by a statue. You can't have a physical form that represents him. And for many of us today, our view of God is too small as it is. We don't see him as great and as big as he is. And God is saying, if you reduce me to that size, you'll never be able to experience the grandeur that I have for you. You'll never see the glories and the greatness. Don't limit me because it limits you. Don't take my name in vain. Why? Because it offends God? No, but when you begin to talk about someone in vain language, it damages your relationship to them and your view of them. I shared this before, but my, my dad wasn't, uh, didn't teach me a lot of things spiritually. He um, wasn't a talker, and I often wondered what his values were. But one day he made one of his values really, really clear. Now, you might think it's funny, and you might say it, and it might be okay in your world. It's not okay, but you might think it's okay. But he stopped me one day, and I'd never said this to my mother, but he'd heard someone say it, and I'm in about seventh, sixth grade, and I'm standing in the dining room. And he said, let's get something straight today. And when my dad said that, he usually st stood like this, leg kicked out, hand in his belt, and I knew he was serious. He said, let's get something straight. If I ever hear you call your mother the old lady, I'll knock your teeth right out of your head. I understood that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't need that to be expounded. And you know what made that powerful? Is he meant it. He meant it. There would be consequences. Why? Because when you joke around about your mother as the old lady, it damages you. It diminishes her, but it damages you. And I'm just going to give you another little pet peeve of mine. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like it when I hear a man refer to as the woman he's married to as, oh, the wife. She has a name. And she's putting up with you. She ought to get a medal. Or a wife who says, yeah, 
the husband, or even my husband. I, it's a funny story, but I, I, we had an evangelist couple, Carol, remember, evangelist couple that came to preach, and she always referred to her husband as, as my husband, my husband, my husband, husband, husband said. And finally one day I asked him, why does she do that? Why does she never say her name? And came, come to find out that they had only dated for about three weeks, got married, and she couldn't always remember his name. So she just, <laughs> she just called him husband because that was always accurate. Yeah, she needed to graduate to his name. Hello? She needed to graduate to his name. Because what you call someone reflects your relationship to them. And God isn't saying, I need you to affirm who I am. He's saying, I need you to not diminish who you are. Amen. It makes you smaller. Remember the Sabbath day. <laughs> Why? Why is that so important? And we can, we can talk about the Sabbath and it's the way it's fulfilled in Christ and all of that. But what is he really trying to say? Because the Sabbath, you've got to understand, the Sabbath isn't based on law. It's based on creation. It's based on creation. And the word remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and not do any servile work therein doesn't mean for you to kick up your feet with uh, lemonade and watching football. It means to cease from secular labor to worship God. It's not a day of rest. It's a day of holy separation, resting from manual labor so that you can seek God. Why? Because you need that. You can't work, you can't work seven days a week. You can't run down that road. And if you don't put God first in your schedule, he's not going to be first in anything. And again, you will wear out in that kind of a model. Jesus is is first in our life, and we honor that. You say, well, what about people that have to work? Listen, I'm not talking about the arguments right now. You can figure your way around those and figure out how that could happen, but I, I, uh, I think there's something really important about taking time in your schedule to worship God. I had a friend, a pastor, who would counsel young couples to do this, and at first it sounded really good to me, and then I realized it didn't sound good at all. He was a busy pastor, and he gave a, he had a, a handwritten calendar and told his wife that anytime she wanted time with him to just write her name in the calendar, and that time would be hers. Well, that sounds special, doesn't it? Except it says, you're not important enough to me for me to do that. No. Hello? Are you hearing what I'm saying? If he's really first, you'll make time for him. <laughs> Ooh, preaching now, brother, preaching now. I know I'm preaching when it gets quiet. We live in a culture that has imposed our experience on our standards and on our theology, and we have all the reasons why it's not necessary. And, and there are, there's an, there, you know, we don't have all the laws and the rules of how many sticks and all that you can pick up, but... It was based on creation. You were created to give a day out of seven to God and spend time with him to recharge your batteries. Honor your parents. That brings stability and health 
to society. It says two things, that if you're going to honor your parents, parents need to live worthy of honor. We live in a culture that needs to understand fathering a child doesn't make a man a dad. It's a character that needs to be lived up to. And think about how much in our world would change if we had children who were honoring parents and parents who lived in a way that their children were, um, uh, were attracted to honor them, had that kind of relationship. Everything changes when the family unit is solid and everything disintegrates when the family unit isn't solid. And God created us that way and in to enjoy the best of your life. Let's build strong family units because he loves the family and he's committed to the family. Don't murder. It doesn't, when it says thou shalt not kill, it means to take life unjustly because the same God who said thou shalt not murder said if a man sheds blood by man, his, his blood shall be shed. So there's a balance there. What is he saying there? He's saying you don't have the right as a lay person, as a non-law enforcement, non-ruler to take the lives of other people. How many are glad that your neighbor doesn't have the right to take your life? You can live longer if people don't have the right to take your life. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever wanted to take the life of a neighbor. That's a different discussion. But God is, does that because he loves you and he doesn't want anyone to hurt you. Don't commit adultery. It's protection for you and your spouse. And let me just, can I pause here for a minute? Thank you for that resounding support. I took two weeks with the young adults to develop a theology of sexual intimacy and to understand what the Bible teaches on that subject. And if you, you, can, you can boil it down to this undeniable evidence in our culture that the intimate relationship between one man and one woman for life is highly valued. I've seen a commercial on... Uh, on television now for several weeks based on a show called Law and Order SVU. And the commercial is one person and then it goes to two, then three, then four, then ten, and the whole screen fills with people saying that sexually based crimes are considered especially heinous. Because whether we acknowledge God or not, we recognize there's a sacred violation in sexual sin that is greater than other violations. It just is because there is a covenant that's part of the sexual union that is to be one man, one woman for life. And everything, listen to me, everything in our world improves on that single premise. If we were to commit to one man, one woman, sexually intimate for life, you know what happens? The family unit is made stronger. Do you know what happens? Disease diminishes. Do you know what happens? Relationships are stronger. Children are in stable homes. Everything, everything is improved by that. So when he's saying don't commit adultery, it's not because he doesn't want you to have fun. It's because he wants you to have fun. Pastor, could you please move on? Don't steal. 
He wants you to be able to enjoy your things. Don't bear false witness. He doesn't want people lying about you. I hate it when people lie about me. There's enough stuff you can say about me that's true. <laughs> you don't have to make stuff up and covet. Do you know you don't have to have anything to be covetous? You can have a lot or a little, but people are never satisfied when they want what someone else has. What are the tables of stone? They're an expression of the love of God for you and a pathway to live life to the full. So God gives it to Moses and sends him down the mountain. But before he goes, Moses, we're going to move from tables of stone that were created by God to tables of stone that Moses chiseled. Down in the valley, while Moses is seeking God and communing with God, the people are going crazy. Moses is taking too long. Now, I don't really fully understand that, but the closest I can come is uh, I have four sisters. There's a year between each one of us. And there were times mom would put us in the car, we would go somewhere, and she had a friend that she would stop by and leave us all in the car, which you can't do today, but leave us all in the car with the windows down and say, stay in the car. I'm just going in for a cup of coffee. I'll only be five minutes. Anybody have that experience? Five minutes. Are you kidding me? It felt like five years. We knew she was going to be in. And the longer she stayed in the house, the more destructive our relationship became in the car. <laughs> Surprise, we survived that. So Moses is up on the mountaintop with God, and the people down in the valley are saying, um, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. We don't know if he's ever coming back. And, and so, Aaron, would you just make us a God that we can follow? Make us gods. And Aaron, being the strong man of faith and power that he was, said, sure, I will. Can I give you a principle this morning? Impatience always leads to bad decisions. Impatience always leads to bad decisions. Calm down, take a breath. Think about what's going on. So Aaron says, whatever you want. I don't know if Aaron was looking forward to being in charge, wanted all the people looking to him. If he was too cowardly, I don't know. But he was also unwilling to trust that Moses would be back and so he takes all their gold and he tells Moses this great story. I just threw it in the fire and I'll jump this calf. Moses, think about this dichotomy. Moses is receiving God's best for his people while they're looking for false gods to endorse their depravity. They made a calf. They made an altar. The next day was going to be a festival, a festival to the Lord. They chose a God from what they understood in Egypt. They made this golden calf. And their abominable response to the absence of Moses was based out of fear. 
and impatience. And God informs Moses of the activities of all the people and threatens to destroy them. And Moses intercedes for the people. God, that's the, and, and it's not because he had to change God's mind, but what happens in that moment is God awakens in Moses the heart of an intercessor for a wayward people, and Moses becomes the leader that God wanted him to be. However, if something doesn't happen, God will destroy his people because sin destroys all of us. Then Moses comes down to see what they're doing. It's not the sound of war, it's the sound of rejoicing. And you get this from some other translations. You wouldn't see this in the NIV because, again, it sanitizes it. But what has happened is they're mimicking what they saw in Egypt. They've created a golden calf, and the entire nation has stripped off their clothes and are dancing naked around a golden calf. Because when you walk away from God and turn to idolatry, sensuality follows right on its heels. And Moses... In his flesh is so angry. Here's what I received as a love gift from God. Look at what these people are doing. And he throws the tables of stone down and they break. Because that's what the people had done. They had broken their covenant relationship. Again, those laws weren't new. They already knew what was expected. It was just codified. And they, he throws it down and they shatter When we sin, the covenant is broken and there are consequences. So what happens now? I, I, there's part of me that... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just see humor probably places where I shouldn't. But Moses is so mad... He grinds that golden calf up into a fine powder, pours it in water, and makes them drink it. <laughs> it's kind of like washing their mouth out with soap. You're going to drink it. You're not even getting it back. You're going to drink it. And then he goes back to God because the tables are broken. And God said to Moses, this time, you chisel out two stone tables. There's always a consequence to our failure, and there's always something we have to do. You chisel out two stone, two stone tablets, and I will write on them. Moses, you're not writing on them. You're not going to have the privilege of rewriting my laws. That belongs in the hand of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We don't have the privilege in a broken, dying world to rewrite the laws of God. I had a conversation with a man I've been sharing faith with recently, and talking about how to interpret scripture gave him a book and he came back and he said you're just way too rigid there needs to be more fluidity more flexibility in how we understand the word of God not at all it's written by the finger of God and you don't have the right to change it right is still right wrong is still wrong and it will be till Jesus comes back but what you have to do is you have to you have to fix the vehicle that carries it the vehicle was broken Moses, you're going to do the work this time. You're going to remember what all this is about. Here's what the good news is. Jesus became our sin bearer. If you break one law, you're guilty of them all. And the law testifies to us that we are not capable in our own strength of satisfying the demands of God. 
We're not capable of arising to that because we have a fallen nature. And you can't recognize you need help until you recognize there's something you fall short of. These tables of stone condemn you because of your behavior and actions and your own heart. In fact, Romans chapter 2 tells us that the demands of the law are written on the hearts of people who have never received the law. And on the day of judgment, they will stand before God to give an account for what was written on their hearts that they didn't recognize. There's an awareness of the image of God stamped on us. And we've all broken those tablets. Leaves us in a pretty bad place that we're condemned. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the tablets move from Mount Sinai to being recrafted by the hand of Moses to being placed on our hearts. So the law, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. What does that mean? It means that we recognize that by doing all the right things and keeping a code of conduct and measuring up to a standard that we can't do that. And the law comes to say, you need a savior. You need a savior. The world lives in a place of being condemned. It becomes clear that we cannot be justified by the law. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now think about that. We look at askance that some people have created or committed the greater sins, but every one of us is guilty of breaking the law. It didn't matter which one they broke when he dropped the commandments. They all broke. You're either guilty of them all or you're keeping them all, and we are all guilty. So we have no room to look down our self-righteous nose at others and say, I'm not as bad as they are because we're all guilty of breaking the stone tablets. We're all guilty of that. Argument ensues then on what it means to no longer be under the dominion of the law. Okay, let me, let me help you understand that. When we say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. People who say that don't even understand, don't have a clue what that means. Sin is transgression of the law. Whether you're under grace or not in your mind. Sin is transgression of the law, and the soul that sins, it will die. So let's get rid of the notion that when I invite Jesus into my life, I can live however I want, do whatever I want, because I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Let's try to understand what it really means. Here's the first principle. When you break the law, you submit back to the law. You put yourself back under the law. If I'm driving down the street in a 35-mile zone doing 34, I'm not under the judgment of the law. I'm free from that. But if I'm doing 44 in a 35 or 45 in a 35, I've put myself under the demands of the law. So here's what Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 10. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, 
This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he said, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. What does it mean to not be under law but under grace? It means that this testimony of what God wants for you has been an external fence trying to hold us in and we keep getting out of the fence. And God recognizing as a law serving as a schoolmaster to call us back to him is saying, I know that you can't do this, but it's what I want for you. How are we going to fix that? That if you come to me, I'm going to take those stone tablets and I'm going to write those on your heart and I'm going to write those in your mind and you'll be directed by my spirit. If any man is led by the spirit of God, he's a son of God. And do you think you can be led by the spirit of God to live in violation of the law? Not at all. You don't have to worry about keeping the code because now the code is on the inside of you, talking to you, directing you, leading you in the way that's everlasting leading you in the truth it leads you in ways of righteousness and when you violate that then you stop and you're checked by the spirit and you say jesus forgive me and he says and i'll never remember it against you again because i'm planting it on the inside of you and making you into the people that i want you to be what does it mean to not be under the law it means under grace the precepts of the law are written on my heart and i want to obey them I want those to be manifested in my lifestyle. So how does that relate to the Lenten season? Jesus died because you broke the law. We need to own that. And because you are guilty of being condemned to a hell created for the devil and his angels, Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice that is why jesus became both man and god god can't die for the sins of men because he's perfect a man can only die for the sins of one man if you had a perfect man he could replace one man and that's all that he could pay for but if you would have a God man who is fully flesh and truly infinite. <laughs> Did you hear what I just said? Fully man and truly infinite. That one man could die for all people from eternity of creation to the eternity of the future paying for our sins. Why did Jesus go to the cross to satisfy the demand of the law in your behalf. He paid your bill. But that'd be pretty tragic if that were the end of the story. Because if you pay my bill today, how many know you're going to have another one tomorrow? He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. You, as a child of God trusting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
understand that he paid for your sins and he put the life of God on the inside of you and made it possible for you to live the way he wants you to live. And in that there is fullness of joy and fullness of life. The Ten Commandments serve to show you you can't keep them. And when you understand that, then he says, come to me. And I'll take them off of unyielding tables of stone. And I will inscribe them on the fleshly tables of your heart. And I will change you from the inside out. That's what the law testifies. What are these What does this rock of law testify? What does it shout? That you can't obey him, but that its demands have been satisfied in full by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And ain't no rock going to cry that out in my place. I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. I was a damaged, hell-bent sinner. And then Jesus came alive on the inside of me. And what I once could not do by the demands of the law, I'm now able to live by the freedom of the Spirit of God. And I'm going to shout that from the mountaintops, that there's a better way to live, that you don't have to strive. There's a Sabbath rest you can enter into, and it's in Jesus Christ who changes you from the inside out. They're on your heart. We broke the stone tablets. Moses had to rechisel the tablets, but Jesus rewrites them. Woo, I'm so glad I came today. (laughs) The law is written in our hearts and leads us in the way everlasting. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment, please. If you've never had that experience of redemption, you've never experienced Jesus forgiving your sins and giving you newness of life, you've never been born again, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that this morning. With no one looking around, you would say, Pastor, I feel the condemnation of the law. I've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to be a Christ follower. I'm going to commit my life to following him so that I can have those demands written on the inside of me. I need Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. If you're in that spot this morning, this would be a wonderful morning for you to invite Uh, Jesus into your life. Would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? I won't embarrass you in any way. Just quickly slip up your hand, whether it's in the auditorium, here in the auditorium or in the the, uh, North Chapel. Just slip up your hand. Thank you. There's one. Anyone else this morning? God's dealing with your heart. God's dealing with your heart. You want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ this morning. Anyone else quickly? Anyone else quickly? The journey begins with a prayer and the prayer can be in any fashion or form that you shape it, but I want everyone in the house to pray this with me. And if you've not invited Jesus in your life and surrendered your life to him, he will hear you this morning and he'll begin a new work of redemption, regeneration in your life. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize I need a savior. I need forgiveness for my sins. I believe that you died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. I believe that you rose from the dead so that I could have newness of life. I ask this morning 
for your forgiveness. And I commit myself this morning to the power of your resurrection. And I will follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that and believed that or you're watching this at a later time, prayed that and believed that, Jesus will sow the seed of life on the inside of you and will make you a new creature in Christ. Angels are rejoicing this morning. We ought to be rejoicing here as well. Let me hear your hands. We're celebrating what God's doing in the lives of people. Would you stand with me if you're thankful this morning that Jesus took those tables of stone that were broken by Moses and we wrote them on the tables of your hearts. What a wonderful way to live. Would you just lift your hands? And let's take a moment to give him praise. Come on, let's take a moment to give him praise.
He's the way, the truth, and life. The only way to come is in the name of Jesus. All we need. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that you have provided a way that we can live under grace and not under law. Thank you for writing the truths of your word on our hearts and empowering us to live in newness of life. And for that, we give you thanks as we look forward to the resurrection. In Jesus' name, and everyone who loves him said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. Shake someone's hand and encourage them this morning. Be a blessing to somebody today.